All right, peeps, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of nonsense from a live studio audience. Lots of gems, lots of mantis-splaining, and lots of, yo, bro, when I go out sparring, I go all out. Let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. <laughs> yo, Mikey, how you doing, man? Doing great, Seagong, how are you? Fantastic. If you guys notice, we have a slightly different setup today uh, because uh, this is my ITC week, which is my yearly intensive training camp. So we have a very small selection of uh, participants from the ITC because most everyone is tired after six hours of training. So we, so we asked some of the students uh, who wanted to stick around and ask some questions in a, not, in a live recorded, but not actually live episode of KFG. So the remaining, what well, we have six students here are the only ones from the I seven students here are the only ones from the ITC that had enough power to stick around afterwards for a uh, very short podcast. So uh, anyway, we're going to be taking questions for them. Hey, we just made it to eight. Lucky number. Wow, look at that. Look at that. Fantastic. So before we get started, uh, the best way to support the Kung Fu Genius podcast is on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Kung Fu Genius. For as little as five dollars, five dollars a month. Five dollars. That's less than a coffee at Starbucks is like a hundred dollars now. Or Absolutely. With inflation, right? It's yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. One less cup of coffee and one less avocado toast, and you can join Patreon twice. Avocado toast. All right. Yes. Uh, so for as little as five dollars a month, you get access to episodes early, as well as my Instagram subscriber reels, and for higher levels of support, you get all sorts of goodies on there as well. So Patreon.com/slash The Kung Fu Genius. The link for that is below. Uh, sorry, uh, the those of you who want to come on the Hong Kong trip, we are overbooked for Hong Kong. So next year. All right. So uh, we're gonna take some questions, but before we get started, yeah, we got a shout out on another YouTube channel. We did. It was really quite awesome. And it's one of your peeps. Yep, I definitely can tell one from of my the accents. Oh my god, he's so one of my peeps. Stripey Rambles. Stripey Rambles is the name of his YouTube channel. Yeah, which is is, is that also his name? Is that a British name? Stripey well, Rambles. Stripey Rambles, mate. <laughs> like yeah, and he's ah oh, he was fantastic. I watched that piece, and it was just like I mean yeah shouted us all out you know yes absolutely and even but also not just the kfg podcast for me but also you and dre by name mm -hmm, right? so absolutely that was pretty awesome and he uh i, I checked out his uh channel uh which i realized i was already subscribed to so i had subscribed to him at some point and he does a lot of videos on uh it was like bruce lee related stuff uh but usually like things about like blu-ray releases or new updated releases of, of like the films and stuff like that so he'll discuss that and uh, the video where he mentions us, though, was a video about Beardy. Uh, mm -hmm. Because of Beardy, uh, who is, you know, the biggest YouTube Bruce Lee channel, but the guy is it's an obvious fraud and liar, <sighs> looks at a photo and makes stuff up and oh, makes yeah. up an entire story, mm -hmm. claims that this is insider information. Uh, he did it with a, uh, a photo uh, from Enter the Dragon. Mm -hmm. And uh, he claimed that there were five minutes of missing footage from Enter the Dragon, where Bruce Lee goes full on, monkey style, against Han, all right? And uh, he based this assertion on, uh, well, he's Beardy, so he got inside information <laughs> about this, right? According to Beardy, he talked to someone at Golden Harvest who said, yeah, there's five minutes of a deleted scene of Bruce Lee fighting Han inexplicably for his character in Enter the Dragon in full-on monkey style. And according to uh, Beardy, 
Uh, Bruce Lee was one of the foremost experts in monkey kung fu. No, you knew that, did you? Uh, yeah, uh, which is total... Bullshit. Bo- no, bollocks. Bollocks, you're bollocks, absolutely right. All right. Bollocks. I got to keep with the theme here. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, Bruce Lee never learned monkey kung fu. Uh, first of all, uh, the number one authority on monkey kung fu in 1973 was Sivu Chan Sao Chong, the grandmaster of monkey kung fu at that time. Uh, by the way, I have Chan Sao Chung's signature on one of the certificates on the wall there from uh, nice. Hong Kong Association. I actually have the late uh, Monkey Kung Fu Grandmaster Chan Sao Chung's signature on a certificate uh, that I got. So um, he was the foremost guy. Right. And so Beardy says he called Golden Harvest. <laughs> All right. Now, I don't want anyone to tell Beardy that Golden Harvest has been shut down for almost 20 years. Okay. Uh, and, also, and Raymond Chow is dead also. All right. Uh, but uh, he called Golden Harvest, okay? Uh, movie studio that no longer really exists. There are a couple movie houses in Hong Kong that still have the Golden Harvest logo, but there effectively is really no Golden Harvest company. It has morphed into another type of company, but there's really no, effectively, there's no real Golden Harvest as it was. But Beardy, uh, among uh, some of his many lies, claimed that he called Golden Harvest, and they said, yeah, there's five minutes of footage uh, of Bruce Lee using monkey kung fu against Han in Enter the Dragon, uh, but it's deleted, and then he's like, well, why won't you release it? And they wouldn't give the great Beardy a reason, all right? The other problem with this, besides the fact that Golden Harvest effectively doesn't exist anymore, is that Enter the Dragon is a Warner Brothers film. So um, the facade of Beardy's made-up concocted bullshit is very easily picked apart, all right? Oddly enough, um, he has like videos with millions of views where he just puts a photo of Bruce Lee, makes up a total batshit crazy bullshit story, and hundreds of thousands of people like it and watch it and clap and say, wow, this is amazing, I didn't know about it. Mind you, none of these people are actually Bruce Lee fans or people who really know anything about Bruce Lee. This is the lowest tier of fandom. Uh, That level of fandom, I call the people when they see punches and kicks on the screen, they go, all right, they're like at that level. Those are the people who watch Beardy videos. They don't know anything. You can literally tell them anything. And I made two videos specifically targeting Beardy and all of his bullshit. And it seems that recently, Beardy's fans have found my videos. Because anyone who talks ish about him, he blocks them right away so that no one says, that's not Grandmaster Baxter, that's Dan Inosanto. Boom, blocked, they're out of there. So no one is there to counter all of these things that he makes up. And uh, so I, I think I was blocked a long time ago when I think I had quite directly asked him, do you just look at a photo of Bruce Lee and then just make something up for half an hour? Is that your, is that your creative process? Um, and uh, so, so he made this up. And the reason is because there's a photo of Bruce ducking one of Han's kicks where he's crouched down. And in that moment, it looks like he's doing monkey kung fu. But the problem with that, not only is Golden Harvest not really a thing anymore, and the movie was Warner Brothers anyway, but that... Bruce ducking Han's kick and in that position is actually in the movie. All right? It's, it's when Han first comes out and he ducks the kick and comes back up. And as Stripey Rambles pointed out, he also does the same thing against Chuck Norris and Way of the Dragon. It's just he ducks under a kick and in that moment, he's crouched down with his hands forward and it looks like a monkey kung fu posture, but it's literally ducking under a kick. So anyway, um, but Beardy's fans have found those videos where I talk trash. And they tell me all sorts of things like, you know, yeah, you are not the real Bruce Lee fan. <laughs> and, uh, and they go, you're only spreading lies. 
Wow. And it's like these are people who come from Beardy's page. All right. Jesus. So anyway, uh, shout out to Stripey Rambles. Thanks for that. That was totally awesome. So didn't someone once leave a leave a comment that said Beardy would kick your ass? Multiple times a day for sure. Like, I just don't always read them. Yeah. I mean, just especially you know after that time when he claimed to. Uh, you know, train like Bruce Lee for a year. Yes, Like, yes, was yes. it 10 hours a day and then it was well, 16 it hours a day? Yeah, yeah. He, he couldn't even keep his own bullshit narrative straight in his own video. Mm-hmm. 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, and that Bruce Lee only ate uh, chicken water and rice. <laughs> right. What's chicken water? Chicken water. And uh, I actually have receipts from that, that, that copies of the receipts of that Bruce Lee ate at restaurants during that time in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, he was not just eating chicken, water, and rice. In fact, he would eat some pretty, pretty good food. So, uh, yeah, no, it's like made up from top to bottom. And Absolutely. also, you have to be somewhat suspicious about the number one expert on Bruce Lee on the internet who dares not show his face, uh, pretends his nickname is Beardy, but his real fake name is Bernard McAllister, who was a former MMA fighter, of which there's no record for. So, I mean, like, you just go, you don't need to go deep to knock Beardy off his perch. It's like just one level below. All of his stories fall apart very easily. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, we have our captive audience here. Fantastic. And uh, so now you guys can ask me anything about Wing Chun, Yip Man, Bruce Lee, Hong Kong, Kung Fu, history, and the like. No technical questions, because that's what the ITC was for. And we're also just sitting here. But anything else? So who's first? You had, yes. Oh, so. do you want to speak on the mic? I'm happy to be a mic runner, because, you know, sure. I like to get up. So yeah, I want to make sure up, that you're on the camera, useful. you see. So you stay where you are. Okay. And, and, um, Nothing I, but professionalism here at the Kung Fu Genius Podcast. I have a wireless mic. I'm amazing. Let's yes. Here we go. Pass this around yourselves. Well, thank you so much. So my uh, question for today. So recently, you took a trip to, sorry, you took a trip to Canada to see Derek Chan and uh, Sifu Carson Lau. Yes. What was that like? Oh, so uh, it was great. As a matter of fact, I'm going back to Toronto. Uh, I, I mean, by the time this episode comes out, this is all old news. Uh, but I'm going to go back to Toronto next week, all right? And I'm going to continue doing some training with Sifu Carson Lau, who's one of my uh, original mentors in the Leung Teng Wing Chun system, some refinements on the knife and, and whatnot. And uh, yeah, while I'm up there, obviously Derek Chan, who's uh, famous on Instagram, I'll go uh, and say hi to him. Uh, last time I was there, I also saw John Little, uh, the famous author of all those Bruce Lee books. And I was very lucky that I was able to preview his newest book on Bruce Lee and review it, and my review is on the back cover of that book, which will come out in September, right under Scott Coker's review. Scott Coker is the guy who owns Bellator. All right, so it's like Scott Coker at the Kung Fu Genius. Very cool, very honored. And it's also crazy for me to see my name on, uh, you know, on a testimonial or a review or a blurb about a book written by an author that I read his books as a teenager. I mean, the, the funny thing is, John Little, you know, uh, has asked me questions about Bruce Lee, and it's bizarre to have him ask me questions because most of what I know about Bruce Lee, I learned from his books. Uh, so he was like, he was the one that got me started. It's really crazy. My, um, perhaps the, the one area where I, uh, where he might find what I know interesting is the Hong Kong side of things because of my connection to Hong Kong and the language. Uh, but when it comes to like general Bruce Lee knowledge of what he was doing in the States, and like John Little's knowledge crushes mine by far. But I'm in certain aspects, especially the Wing Chun connection, the Hong Kong connection, that kind of stuff. Um, I have some info there. But uh, the book is amazing, and I've talked about it on a couple of recent episodes. There was probably, besides training with Sifu Lau, which was awesome, 
the coolest thing was like, John Little has a new book coming out on Bruce Lee, and it's awesome. The book chronicles all of Bruce Lee's real fights. Because nowadays, because of all the pushback from the MMA bros, yeah, Bruce Lee never fought in MMA. 68, <laughs> no, no one fought in MMA unless they were in Brazil <laughs> at that time. Uh, and uh, yeah, he didn't compete at that time in point karate, in tag. I mean, like, what is he supposed to compete in boxing? He's not a boxer. And he actually did have an officially sanctioned boxing fight in Hong Kong anyway. So I mean, like, I don't understand. Also the thing is, Bruce was never the one that made all of these claims that he was so great and unbeatable and this and that and the other thing. He's not the one making those claims. It's his fanboys making it 50 years later. And people ask me as if I have to defend Bruce Lee against a claim he never made, all right? Bruce Lee was someone who respected professional fighters, especially at that time boxers, heavyweight boxers. He had a tremendous amount of respect for him and for them. And I don't think that he was the guy, yeah, I beat all these guys or whatever, right? But his fanboys are like that. And then so there's a lot of like in the MMA world, a lot of attacks on Bruce Lee that are unfair and then people come into Bruce Lee's defense when Bruce Lee never claimed anything to begin with. So I find the whole project a little muddled. Um, so, uh, and so does John Little. So what he decided to do is say, hey, Bruce Lee had a number of fights. Yeah, I mean, not in the ring, but I mean, at that time, who, how many people were fighting in the ring? All right, what about Miyoto Musashi's fights, okay? Are, like, where's the footage on that, okay? Where's the footage on a lot of these great fighters back in the day, right? The, the, iPhones were really shitty in the 60s. Cameras were <laughs> awful. They were, uh, we call potato quality videos, right? Uh, so just really, really terrible. So, uh, so I feel that Bruce Lee gets attacked for having lived in the wrong part of the 20th century or something mm -hmm. like that, right? So uh, what John Little did is he took all the fights that Bruce Lee purportedly had from the very beginning, his very first fight before he started Wing Chun, uh, he had as a kid and he lost that fight. <laughs> and uh, that's part of the reason why he decided to learn martial arts. He had only learned some Tai Chi from his father. And, and when he was very young, he really believed in all of these um, fantastic fairy tales that they talk about Tai Chi masters able to ward off people very easily and he believed in that and he had learned some Tai Chi postures and then someone got in his face and he tried to Tai Chi posture and it got cracked and it was like this sucks and then eventually made his way to Wing Chun right uh, so John goes like in, in order and goes through all of these different fights and then what he does is he references all of his sources so you see okay where did he get this information from it's not just like pick you know, picking this stuff out of thin air. And he tried to get as much corroborating evidence and, uh, and, and uh, other witnesses who were there to kind of back up all these stories. And he put it together, I think it's 30 something fights. Wow. Um, and then he also in there puts some of the sparring matches and stuff. It's all in the back there. I don't want to give too much away because the book is awesome. I think uh, the book is already on Amazon and on the Amazon listing, it has my review in there in the listing too, which is like crazy, right? I still geek out about that. Uh, and it comes out, I think, the first week of September. So I highly recommend getting it. The book was awesome. Uh, and it just goes through all of these different fights, gives a lot of background on Bruce Lee. And it's one of the best books on Bruce Lee I've written, uh, I've read in a few years. Uh, because a lot of the new stuff that comes out on Bruce Lee, the exception of Matt Pauly's wonderful book or whatever, is some variation of something I've read already. And this one really felt like I was reading a new Bruce Lee book for the first time because it was a new take really good information. So meeting John Little for the first time, uh, besides obviously seeing Sifu Lao, which is always great, and meeting the great Derek Chan, uh, but uh, seeing John Little was a huge highlight of that trip. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. It was like it's someone from my childhood. My very first trip to Hong Kong in 1996, uh, when I went there and I met Sammo Hung, 
I went with two books. I had John Little's uh, Warrior Within and I had Bay Logan's Hong Kong Action Cinema. Those are two people that I now know. And I was a pimply-faced teenager with these two books, like, oh, and now it's like, it's, uh, it's come quite, quite a way, so, yeah. So what if you could transport back in time for a front row seat into the life and legacy of one of the most respected Wing Chun masters in history? Gong Sao Wong, a tribute, directs students on Sifu Wong Shunung offers you just that. Through a series of exclusive conversations, 25 direct students share anecdotes, reflections, and personal stories offering in-depth understanding of the man behind the legend. Order your copy today across 12 Amazon marketplaces with free shipping. I absolutely love this book, and I think you'll find it an indispensable part of your collection. I can't recommend it enough. Get yours today. Go to Amazon, type in Gong Sao Wong, and there you go. Awesome. Great. So what else we got? All right. We got Andrew. This guy's uh, Yeah, kind this, of he's kind of a bit sketchy, this one. <laughs> I take after my Sifu. Yeah. Uh, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you knew anything about the Sanjin form or, or Samchin or yes. whatever, because uh, this is found in... Southern White Crane, Karate, all these different styles that we're related to. Mm -hmm. And especially since you've done Chao Ga, I was curious if you knew why we don't see it in Wing Chun, but also if any ideas from that form are uh, prevalent. In oh, that's a great Chun. question. This is real geek kung fu stuff that I like. Now, first thing I have to say is I'm not an expert in White Crane. I'm also not an expert in Chao Ga Mantis, all right? So uh, I just have to put that out there because uh, I, there are people out there who have far more knowledge on these topics than I do. Uh, so if I say something in error, of course, it's not my style, all right? But it is something that I have studied a little bit. I learned uh, the, uh, the Samtin uh, form on the White Crane side from Sivu Lee Kong in Hong Kong in 2014. And then in 2015, I learned the, the, the Sambo Jin, or the, 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 which is another variation of the Samtin, the Mantis version from uh, Sivu Lee Tin Loi. So I learned both the white crane, it's a very old Fukienese style, and then the, uh, the, the southern mantis version. So, uh, and I was, at that time, I was really exploring that uh, because, uh, you know, I wanted to go back into our roots of Wing Chun, like where, what are our ancestor styles? Because they're very much like human evolution, like martial arts styles did not just uh, suddenly, spontaneously create out of, the whole cloth out of nothing and suddenly the style is there. There's like, you know, a couple masters are training together and they put something together and then they teach it to someone and then that guy puts it together and refines it and they add this thing here and then over time you have these accretions and deletions and refinements and over time these styles develop and then someone says, what's the history of the style? And then they make up some bullshit story about 200 years ago was created by a nun, all right? <laughs> when in reality it's like a bunch of people slowly over time uh, developing a style. I mean, we're talking about fist fighting. So this is something that is an evolution. You have a hypothesis, simultaneous offense and defense. That's an idea. How do we do that? Well, we can go this way, we can go this way. Maybe it's better if we have a squared up position. Okay, what if it goes here? Well, we need this one, we need this one, we need this one, this one, this one, this one. These things develop over time. Someone just doesn't go, bah! Three forms, chi sao, a wooden dummy, a pole, and knives. I got it. All right, and then they have all of this stuff put together. These are clearly things that are developed over time. And usually it happens with some people from established styles are not entirely satisfied with what they did. So they branch off. They maybe train with some people from other styles. They put these together and they start to develop it into a new idea. And so Southern White Crane, which is from Fujian, Fukin, 
Um, that white crane is called Wing Chun Ba Ho. So when you hear the name Wing Chun in there, but it's eternal spring, not a praise spring. So it's a slightly different character than ours. And um, you can almost consider that the OG style of Southern martial arts, although there are definitely exceptions. Most of what we call Southern Kung Fu, Southern styles, even many Hakka styles or Cantonese Kung Fu, many of those styles, a large percentage of them, find their root in the white crane. That's why it's kind of hypothesized that there is no Southern Shaolin temple. Southern Shaolin is really Fujian white crane. That is the OG style. And so the, I talked about this on a recent podcast, the Hakka people, the Hak means guest, Ka is family. So it's like they're basically nomadic tribe from the north. They moved to the south. They had their own indigenous uh, Hakka styles. And they picked up the Fujian white crane. And they merged that with their styles. And then they brought that to Canton. So that's why many southern styles are also kind of Hakka styles. Because it was the Hakka people that brought it to Canton. Not every style, but many of them. Uh, Wing Chun definitely has some white crane influence. Hongkun has a much more obvious white crane influence in it. Um, and when you look at uh, Fujian white crane, and I highly suggest if you haven't done it, and for those of you who are listening, to go on YouTube and type in Lee Kong, L-E-E-K-O-N-G, Lee Kong white crane, and watch his Samchin form, and then watch some of his other forms, and just look at it from the side. Don't pay attention to, okay, slightly different posture, whatever, look at it in certain movements. You could, this is Tan Sao, Fak Sao, Fok Sao, chain punching, chain striking down the center. And you go, oh, okay. Uh, there's definitely something there. And uh, it's interesting because most of the Hakka styles have some version of the Samchin in it. Uh, by the way, because it's Chinese, they all argue about the proper title because you have uh, uh, Qin, um, the term Qin, uh, usually, yeah, it sounds like uh, arrow, like three arrows, but Xin can also be like war or battle. So there's some styles he translates of the three battles form and other people have three arrow form. From what I understand, it actually should be three arrow, all right, not three battle, because uh, Siva Leung Ting once said to me, why would you use fists in a war? Okay, <laughs> all right, so I'm like, okay, that makes sense, all right. So, uh, uh, but the idea of how you move forward, like usually three steps this way, three steps back, this kind of like, and you move forward like in what we might call an arrow step. Boom, forward, this way here. So, but again, a white crane master could totally say I'm wrong on that and have totally legit reasons for that. I'll, I'll let those guys duke it out. I'm just a Wing Chun guy. We got our own bullshit to fight about, right? So, um, so that's the original one. Now, Okinawan fishermen and traders, whoever, also made their way to Fujian and then learned that style and brought that back to Okinawa. And that's why in traditional Okinawan karate, you have the Sanchin form, which is just a Japanese pronunciation of Samchin. All right. And then, but they do it a lot harder for strength training and for breathing. And then, and, and then so you'll see that's like a very hard mutation of that form there. But um, it's part of our DNA. Wing Chun, I think, shed a lot of the very traditional white crane stuff. We have the elements in there, but we don't necessarily use the same framework. But when you look at Wing Chun, Eternal Spring, they, they still look like more like the old white crane. And when you look at some Hong Kun forms, especially if you watch Xin Kun, the iron wire form in Hongar, uh, 
you can see the white crane all throughout it. It's, it's very prevalent, yeah, very prevalent. And uh, it also needs to be understood for those who might not know, there's a difference between a southern and northern white crane. I mean, really the northern white crane is really the, the so-called Tibetan Lama white crane. And that is a completely different style of Kung Fu. They're not related, okay? They just bear the same white crane in the title. The same thing with mantis. Uh, most people, when they think of mantis, if you watch kung fu movies, you think of this one, right? You think of the hook going this way here, right? That is northern mantis, okay? And southern mantis is square, just like in Wing Chun. You stay square, it's short bridge hands, powerful movements, phoenix eye fist, stuff like that. And the northern and southern mantis are two completely independent styles. They just bear the same name. The, they're, they're, it's, it's just one guy decided to imitate the way a mantis looks, and the other style decided to create, uh, to create a style based on how a mantis fights. So I'm not saying the northern style doesn't fight like a mantis, but if, for me it's one looks more like a mantis and one fights like a mantis, all right? And that's kind of the difference between, in my very lay opinion, of the difference between northern and south. Uh, most people agree that northern and southern mantis are two different styles, except one person. I only had this argument with one person. But I did not, well, I didn't have an argument with the moment I realized that they didn't agree, I shut the hell up. And do you know who that was? <laughs> Lo Mong from Five Deadly Venoms. All right? Okay? So if you ever watch Five Deadly Venoms, you know, Lo Mong is the toad, the toughest one, right? Good friend of mine. Met him multiple times, both here in the States and in Hong Kong. And he is a Southern Mantis guy. All right? He's not Tao Ga, he's Tiu Ga. But Tao and Tiu are, one is a rebel of the other one, but it's from the same time. But it's Southern Mantis. And that's what... Uh, um, Lomong learned. If you watch the movie Invincible Shaolin and you see him doing Mantis and you see him doing it's Southern Mantis because that's the style he actually learned in real life. And then I was, I was talking with him and I said, oh, you know, like, uh, oh, you know, like in Northern and Southern Mantis, so, you know, they're, they're from different sources. He goes, no, they're not. All from the same source. And like, when, when the, you know, when, when, when the toad from Five Daily was like that, like, uh, <laughs> like uh, no, no, you're totally wrong. All right. Okay. Uh, so I just, I just, Kind of nodded and smiled, right? And then a week later, I saw uh, my Southern Mantis teacher, Leighton Loy, and I said that. He's like, not the same, not the same. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'll let you guys duke it out, all right? You know, and the funny thing about uh, learning about Kung Fu politics is that it's so much more entertaining and fun when it's not your style, right? You just sit back and you go like, and you just watch these guys arguing. And then at some point you realize, oh, this is what Wing Chun arguments sound like to people outside of Wing Chun, which is why at some point I also gave up the ghost on all of those kinds of things. So could it be said that you almost mantis-splained uh, Lo Mong? <laughs> <laughs> Slow clap, gradually gaining momentum, all right? Mantis-splained, all right? If we see him in Hong Kong, I want you to say that. He barely speaks any English. I just want you to say that to him. I just want, I just want, was he trying to mantis-splain you? Huh? I just want to see that whole conversation. It's going to be great, all right? Yes, no, no mantis-splaining, all right? Great question. Who else has a question? Oh, my God. You're going to, uh, you're going to do a lot of dead-air editing. No. Yo, Marlon. Marlon's got it. Yes. Uh, when did you first know that you were going to focus on learning Wing Chun? Oh, um, that's, uh, when did I first know? Um, the moment I met uh, uh, Sifu Johan Sasenuk from Issaquah, Washington. That was literally the moment. Uh, since I was eight years old, uh, you know, I had already been doing karate. And I saw Enter the Dragon, I was like, oh my God, what is this sorcery? 
and I wanted to do Kung Fu, but in Central Jersey, there really wasn't any Chinese Kung Fu. If you wanted to do Kung Fu in Central Jersey, you had to go to New York City. <laughs> so, and there was no way my mom was gonna take me to New York City to do Kung Fu, all right? Uh, because that was New York in the 80s, all right? So it was not this uh, Disneyland you see in front of you right now. Although New York <laughs> is not really like Disneyland anymore. Uh, so anyway, um, I you know, became obsessed with Bruce Lee. I read his books, but I was only able to do Taekwondo. But I would read his, Bruce Lee's Fighting Method, Tao Jikundo, all of these books. But it wasn't until I moved to see, uh, the Seattle area. And then there was a non-classical Wing Chun school in the town that I lived in. And that guy taught a Bruce Lee variant of Wing Chun. And I walked in, I was like, there's a Wing Chun school here in Issaquah, Washington, of all places. And I met him and he showed me all these chain punches and blah, simultaneous offense and defense and closed the gap against a kick. And I was like, <gasps> and I was like, I found it. I wanted to do it all the time. And then it was like, it, it was right there. And then I, I became obsessed with it. After about three years of training non-classical Wing Chun, I decided to go back and see the more traditional version of Wing Chun and see, uh, because when you, whenever you do either Jeet Kune Do or Bruce Lee Seattle era non-classical Gong Fu, you are basically accepting Bruce Lee's edits. All right, Bruce Lee learned Wing Chun, let's say for two years or less. So he was very good at what little he learned. That basically became the foundation of what he taught in the States. And then he started to change things up for various reasons based on his own personal preferences, his students, what he thought worked in, what he, un what he understood, what he didn't understand. And then so when you're doing that, you're basically accepting the edits of someone with two years of Wing Chun. A very good fighter, like regardless, it's not a knock on him. I mean, what, think of it, Bruce Lee is considered the king of Kung Fu. That guy had two years of Wing Chun training, all right? How awesome is Bruce Lee? And dare I say, how awesome is Wing Chun? <laughs> you can teach someone for two years and he knows enough stuff to beat the crap out of most of the guys he encounters in the States at that time. It's very impressive. Um, but if you're doing that, either Jeet Kune Do or you're doing non-classical Wing Chun, in my opinion, which non-classical Kung Fu people and Jeet Kune Do people do not need to get upset about because it's just my opinion. Um, you're also to a certain degree accepting the edits and development of someone who had a limited uh, exposure to the full palette of what Wing Chun has. So I thought, well, if I can go to a more classical Wing Chun style and kind of get the whole pet, like learn the wooden dummy properly, learn all of this other stuff, would I come to the same conclusion as Bruce Lee that, yeah, well, basically you just need a couple little things here and there and that's good enough. You don't need all this crazy advanced stuff. Uh, or would I find out that there were things in Wing Chun that maybe Bruce Lee had not seen that could have solved some of the problems that he had to look elsewhere to seek, uh, he had to seek elsewhere and then find. So that was, then, that was then how I made my way to learning Wing Chun. But for me, Wing Chun was love at first sight. And when I, I always wanted to do it, and then suddenly I saw when I was 14 or 15, there was a school there. And I was like, oh, and I went in. And then I was, and the rest is as they say, history. All right. So I got a quick question for you. Uh oh. <laughs> Back to Taekwondo, as it were. Uh huh. Why do you think there's so many Taekwondo schools in, in America? Uh, it's actually a serious question because it's like when I was talking to like start martial arts, it was between that and like kind of, I always wanted to do Muay Thai and I found some place, but everywhere I found was like, oh, we're MMA, Taekwondo. And like, right. you know, anyone I spoke to when I started learning Wing Chun was like, oh yeah, I do martial arts, I do Taekwondo. Right. And it like apparently in every hamlet and township yes, and hamlets. village, uh -huh. 
that's one of you your know. words. It is. I'm, right. I'm going to bring it back. Good. Yeah. So uh, bring Hamlet back. All right. So <laughs> uh, that's a great question. So uh, that has to do with the history of the development of martial arts schools. In this case, let's just pick the U.S., although it's similar development in, in a lot of other Western countries. Um, so first of all, the reason why Chinese Kung Fu was not as widespread as, let's say, if we look back like 60s, 70s, maybe even back to the 50s, what did you really find here in the States? Karate and Judo. Judo, yes, karate maybe, all right? Judo had a, li a little bit of a head start in terms of its development uh, uh, outside of uh, Japan. But you didn't find any Chinese Kung Fu. And there are a couple reasons for that, all right? One, in general, even in China or Hong Kong, Chinese Kung Fu was never taught as a profession. When you look at the um, history of Chinese Kung Fu masters, even you look at, even within Wing Chun, you look at Le Zhan, the Kung Fu king of Wing Chun. He was a, he was a, he was a doctor, all right? He was a bone setter, Chinese medicine, and that was his main income. He just happened to have learned and be the inheritor of the Wing Chun style, so he taught some students on the side to pass on the art, as is his Confucian obligation. If you do not pass on the art, then you have done a dirty to your ancestors, right? So that's why in those days, some of those Sivus would even just teach one or two people almost just to appease their Confucian obligation. You were given this style of Kung Fu, which is uh, um, a rich tradition passed down from teacher to student, teacher to student, teacher to student. And if you were passed down this style as a Chinese man at that time, and you didn't pass it on, then you have done a disservice to the ancestors of your style. So you were obligated to find some rube to pass the style on to, all right? And then I even know uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Pauli Zink, famous apropos monkey kung fu master, all right? He learned monkey kung fu in, in the 70s and I believe up until the early 80s from his sivu named Chou Tatling in Los Angeles. And his sivu was an outstanding disciple of monkey kung fu, but really didn't want to teach it for a living because he was a businessman. I think he was in the jewelry trade. So he found one guy, Pauli Zink, this young guy with some Hong Kong training, and poured all of his knowledge into Pauli for 10 years. Made him hyper-flexible, taught him all the monkey forms, all the Daising Pekwar forms, gave everything to him, and he's like, okay, it's yours. And they moved to Thailand and started selling jewelry. <laughs> okay, so while that is an extreme example, it's not too far off from some of the ancestors, perhaps even of our style. It's like they got it, they were really into it, but the idea of opening a school and doing it commercially, that was, that was not something that they thought about in China. The, real, the first real commercial Kung Fu school that I know of, like brick and mortar, sign board, come and join this school, from what I understand, was the Jingwu Academy in China. And that was 19, that was 1917, around Second World War, 1922, around that time period, okay? Or uh, First World War, sorry. Uh, about 1917, okay? I think was around the time, yeah. And then till 1922, somewhere in there is when it started. And that was the first brick and mortar school. And it wasn't even purely a Kung Fu school. They taught athletics. In fact, the term athletic association, which I call my association, athletic association, started with Jing Wu. All right, so, so the Wing Chun Athletic Association was borrowing from the Jing Wu Academy and I was borrowing from them, all right? Uh, and they were the first, and what they did is they taught martial arts and they taught something that was really exotic at that time, Western bodybuilding Ooh. to Chinese, all right? 
and also athletics, archery, and other things. So it was an athletic association of which martial arts was one of the offerings, all right? And uh, that, to my knowledge, was the first attempt at a brick-and-mortar martial arts school in China, and it was in Shanghai. So uh, that means that you're not going to go back to the Qing dynasty and find a bunch of schools down a row in, in Fatsan, all right? It just, it, it, it just didn't really exist. Leung Zhan taught, from what I understand, out of his apothecary. He didn't have a school, all right? Chan uh, Washeng Yip Man Sivu taught at uh, the ancestral temple of the Yip family. That's why Yip Man found out about Chan Washeng, because Chan uh, Washeng was renting the ancestral temple of the Yip family to teach his Wing Chun classes. No brick and mortar school. So, uh, however, in Okinawa and Japan, they taught things very differently. They taught things in a much more professional way, even early on. You had a dojo with rules and everything like that. Like this whole idea of the established institution of a Chinese or of a, of a martial arts school, I should say, is really more of a Japanese and Okinawan idea that would develop over time. And they also taught in a very disciplined way. So they already had this advantage. They had a ranking system. Chinese Kung Fu didn't have a ranking system. You just learn from your Sifu until your Sifu was like, yeah, you're good enough to teach. Go teach your Sifu now. See you later. All right? And that allowed, that was a very unfair system because it picked a lot of favorites. It wasn't clear. Am I doing okay? It was like, you didn't know if you were any good until one day your Sifu was like, okay, you can teach now. And you're like, oh, oh okay. I didn't even know if you thought I sucked or not. <laughs> like, and then, you know, so, so the idea is that, you know, I, I, I get the, um, the arguments against having a ranking system because of the abuses of it. So, but the problem is whenever people talk about what's bad about ranking systems, they always use the straw man argument is, oh, the McDojos that are just selling belts. Well, what about a style like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu where it's very difficult to level up? You know, like it might take you 15 years to get a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu where it takes you maybe three to five years in karate, right? So the idea that a style has a ranking system automatically means you're selling out is not true. It depends on the ethics of the school and how they value a ranking system and how they enforce it. Just the word Chinese Kung people, oh, you have a ranking system, you're selling out. Yeah, tell that to a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Tell me he's a sellout because he has a belt on his pants and he'll strangle you with your own face. Right? <laughs> okay? So I mean, so, so the problem is this, like this, very, this very simplified trope of a ranking system waters it down. That's why we don't have it in Chinese Kung Fu. Yeah, you have a cranky, moody Sifu that teaches according to his mood, doesn't like this guy, doesn't teach that guy shit, likes this guy, teaches him a lot, and then at some point he's like, okay, you teach, I'm gonna retire, all right? Yeah, that's a real awesome model for quality and structure, all right? So um, the Japanese had that advantage, and then Taekwondo, which took karate as its inspiration, uh -huh. they also had the ranking system, they established it step by step, and also you have people like Jun Ri in the 1960s who was very business-oriented, and the idea of a professional martial arts school with a reception, and then you join, and then you have your belts, and you do like this. I mean, really, Jun Ri was probably the first one to do that. It was a Taekwondo guy who made that model. And then it kind of went there. And then they realized the huge part of that market is teaching kids. Uh. All right? And Whereas Chinese Kung Fu Sifus often, myself included, are very proud to say how difficult their style is for kids to learn because it's so brutal and good and the kids it's too boring to do Siyunam Chao, okay fine, all right? But uh, uh, so, so a lot of it has to do with the culture of those styles and that um, it's not against the wishes of many of the founders of those styles to spread it. But many of the Chinese Kung Fu systems, the saying is 
to spread the style is against the wishes of the founder. So it's only to give it to one or two trusted disciples. It's not to teach it openly. Yeah. Because it, these things were considered trade secrets. All right. And then that's why. So Chinese Kung Fu was shackled by these parts of Chinese culture that didn't allow them to go out and to be open. They kept it secret. If in the 50s, you wanted to, if, if you could go back in time to the 1950s and you wanted to learn Chinese Kung Fu in the 50s, one, you would have to go to a Chinatown. And two, they would look at you if you were non-Chinese and say, get out of here, all right? But you could find uh, judo school or maybe 50s, a little bit difficult, let's say 60s, you could find a karate school somewhere. But Chinese Kung Fu, no. That's why when Bruce Lee started teaching Chinese Kung Fu more openly, it was a big deal. Not because he was teaching Westerners, but because you couldn't find it. Where the hell are you gonna find Kung Fu? You can't. He was like, oh, I teach Kung Fu. Oh, crazy, done. So that's kind of a cultural thing, uh. all right? Awesome. What other questions? What do you guys got? I want, you, I want someone to challenge me. So many people are confused about basics in Wing Chun Chi Sao. Some view it as a collection of moves and masters confuse their own students by talking of principles and concepts without telling them what's what. The 15 Chi Sao Fundamentals is my attempt at explaining Wing Chun Chi Sao from a perspective of principles, but also with the basic techniques required to express those principles. It shows the framework for Hong Kong Wing Chun Chi Sao, in particular, the training of Pun Sao and Lap Da. This is necessary training before going on to the higher and more spontaneous expressions of Chi Sao. Right now, if you use the code KFG Chi Sao, you can get a signed copy of my book for the price of the unsigned one. Click on the link in the description below and use the code KFG Chi Sao at checkout to get a signed copy of this full color, over 230 page manual on the vital foundational training exercise of Wing Chun. This offer is good while supplies last, so get yours today. I'm curious if you have thoughts on... I don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't have any thoughts. Um, are we back to the internal monologue? Do you have an internal monologue? Yeah. I, I are you sure? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Let's take a stroll. If I do, it's in your voice, though. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I would commit suicide. <laughs> what um, am I saying? <laughs> so, when it comes to sparring, I'm curious about your thoughts on technical versus hard sparring. And yes. also, if you've noticed any trends with that when it comes to traditional martial arts versus MMA. Right. Like my understanding is in MMA, they've actually moved away from harder sparring, but I don't well, know. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on the gym because MMA, you, you can, it's very difficult to make any statements about MMA collectively because every gym, every gym that teaches MMA has their own vibe, their own way of doing stuff. But yeah, in general, there seems to be a trend, especially for professional fighters to get away from brutally hard sparring in the day-to-day -day training because um, most of the injuries that professional fighters incur are in training, not in the actual fight. So one thing is if you're training, you're in a, uh, um, you know, like a three month or eight week or whatever your training camp is for the fight that you're going for, you don't want to be getting wrecked in training and then showing up to the fight, you know, kind of concussed with all sorts of stuff falling off of you, right? So uh, the other thing too is uh, brain damage. All right, I mean, we now see, we have now have some body of statistics from boxing. The jury is still out on MMA um, because yeah, on one hand you have the smaller gloves, which could technically give more uh, uh, damage. You have the elbows and stuff like that, but uh, MMA, you also have the ability to clinch and tie someone up and bring them to the floor if you're starting to get your ass kicked. Whereas in boxing, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, if you're getting your ass kicked, you're just getting head trauma. 
all right? Whereas at least in MMA, you can like wrestle, tie the guy up for longer periods than you can do in boxing, right? But it'll be interesting to see in 10 or 20 years when you now have all of these ex-fighters who've been retired for a long time from MMA to see what happens to them after a brutal MMA career, you know? We already see some stuff, all right? Chuck Liddell, I think, is a prime example of taking too much head trauma as an MMA fighter, all right? Um, but I don't know in general if that's going to happen to everyone compared to, because it doesn't happen to everyone in boxing. So uh, one, the jury's still out in terms of like, okay, what are the hard stats on that? But also I think people are realizing that they're getting messed up in the gym wars and they're wasting their peak as a fighter in the gym. Uh, and so the idea is there is a trend, at least in a lot of the better gyms, in my opinion, to go to more technical sparring using controlled force, not always trying to kill your partner. But I mean, you can go on YouTube and see examples of gym fights in MMA gyms from last week where people are just really kicking the snot out of each other because of ego. You also have to think of what the age group is for the average competitive MMA fighter, all right? In your 20s, all right? I don't know about you, but I was a shithead when I was in my 20s, all right? <laughs> so um, if, if I was, if, if I, instead of having a Wing Chun school, was learning MMA in my 20s, okay? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what's gonna happen. You, the guy hits you and you're like, oh yeah, do, 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 and then before you know it, you're really going at it, and then you're going home like this, and then you come back the next day and repeat. All right, and then if you're also fighting competitively, how much trauma are you taking, right? Um, of course, if we really wanna get good at fighting or self-defense or whatever, you do need to do sparring and fighting that does put you under pressure and the, the risk every once in a while that you are going to get clocked, so you have a little bit of that fear and you have to manage that because the moment you have adrenaline, it changes everything, but my counter to that, and I believe that that's, if you're really serious about being able to fight or defend yourself, yeah, every now and again, be like, yo, we're gonna put the gloves on. You know, you're gonna be Rocky and Apollo at the end of Rocky III, let's go, let's go for it, let's see what's up, right? And then as long as you can shake it out and everything's cool, all right. Um, but uh, most people are not really getting in fights. If you look, if you're not a professional fighter, then when are you gonna use your wing chuck? If someone attacks you on the street, if someone gets in your face, you can use the escalation to avoid them. It's way easier to avoid the fight, all right? I mean, if you really want to. So you have to go, okay, as a normal person doing martial arts, how often do you reasonably expect, how many, like, put it to you this way, from now until the end of your life, whenever that is, how many real fights do you expect to get into? And if you're not a professional fighter, right? Seven. Ten, all right, okay. <laughs> okay. Seven, you have a very specific number ready to go. All right, six and a half. The last one's just a little shoving contest. Right? But it's exactly, it's exactly what I want, all right? Uh, so you have to think, okay, um, if we're talking about defending yourself, all right? Uh, bar, the guy takes a swing, pop, 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 couple quick exchanges. You, you frame, you keep the guy off of you, you hit the guy really hard, you tie him up, you hold him, you keep him, and then you get separated and it's done. Let's say the fight ends in 15 seconds, all right, before you get separated or something. And you either beat the guy or you get your butt kicked, all right? 15 seconds, all right? So let's say you get into four fights in the rest of your life. That's a minute. And then you have to go, okay, how much trauma and damage am I going to take as a non-competitive? So of course, if someone is a bouncer, a bodyguard, a police officer, okay, they need to train differently because they are going to need to use this stuff all the time. 
uh, or if you're a professional fighter, right? But for the average person that does martial arts to enhance their life, their confidence and all that kind of stuff, yeah, you want to know that you can do something and you can have that kind of training. But you also have to be reasonable. If you got in four fights, quick street altercations, that would be done in 15 seconds or less, then your four fights is a minute of your life. So how much training are you gonna do for potentially having a fight all out for one minute from now until you're not around anymore, right? How much brain damage, how much hand trauma are you willing to take to come back to the uh, iron palm question, which we can also get to in a moment, uh, for that. So it's, a, it's about what's reasonable for what you wanna do, right? Obviously, most people who do martial arts kind of know this intuitively. I'm probably not gonna get in a fight for the rest of my life because I'm a normal, civilized person. Hmm. So you do martial arts because you, in, you do martial arts because hmm. you enjoy it. It enhances your life. It makes you better in dealing with people. Um, you have that third place. Most people go to work and they go home and they don't have a third place and they're miserable. And you go to your martial arts training a couple times a week. It's social. You learn something. You blow off some steam. And as we are also animals, where we have our adrenal glands and every once in a while you need to let that stuff out and so it's a very healthy way to get that stuff out so if you never get in a fight for the rest of your life you don't waste a minute doing martial arts even if you never get in a fight in your life because you have all of these great benefits confidence uh learning what you're capable of doing and also learning what you're not capable of doing a good martial arts school should teach you yeah i can do a lot more than i ever thought i could but i don't think i can beat that guy why? Because that's a realistic attitude that is born from training. If you go to martial arts training for a while and you like, beat everyone's ass, all right? Either, all right, you're just the king of that gym that you train at, or your training is really unrealistic, or you have some really hardcore sampling bias with the people you train with. Because it doesn't matter how good you are. There's always someone walking out there who's got your number, all right? It doesn't matter what you know or, or, or what. And you could be having the worst day and they could be having their best day and they've never done martial arts and they'll catch you slipping and there you go, right? So by realistic training, you learn this intuitively. Some days you got it, some days you don't and a good system should teach you, yeah, I think if this guy does something, I think I can do something and then you look at this guy and you go, if this guy comes at me, I don't think I can do anything because the catalog of my experience shows me people that size I might still have trouble with. So I'm gonna avoid this and that's a very smart life-saving idea to have. It should give you a realistic comparison for what you can do and what you can't do. And all of these things you learn from martial arts. And if you never get in a fight a day in your life, you will always have that, all right? And so uh, that's why the hard sparring question is always, why are you doing it and for what reason? And what do you reasonably expect? And where do you want to be when you're older, all right? Okay, great question. All right, I think we got time for one more? Oh, definitely one more. All right, one more question. Who's got a question? Question. You don't have to be yeah. on camera. You don't have to you be on camera. You can be a, you can be a, a, a headless voice. Yeah, the disembodied voice today. Yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, movies, right? Like you always talk about movies and yes. you're, it's like a passion of yours. Yes. Do you ever think there will be the level of impact that Bruce Lee had on Kung Fu movies? Do you think there will ever be another version of him no. for something else? Uh, not for martial arts. That time has... That time is gone. The pioneer time of martial art films is done, all right? And, and so it's unfortunate um, because uh, there's something called the primacy effect. The first one to do it is usually the one that sticks in your head, for better or worse. Uh, and it happens that with martial arts, although there were martial arts that predate Bruce Lee, martial art films, I should say, but then once Bruce Lee came out, he changed everything. There was rock and roll before the Beatles. 
But when you look at music, there was the time before the Beatles and the time after the Beatles. You look at Elvis, it was the time before Elvis and the time after Elvis. Martial art films, the time before Bruce Lee and the time after Bruce Lee. So there's just certain like institutional characters or groups that come into an industry and they change it. And everyone else afterwards is either compared to that original one or they have to pivot and do something different. But then after you have a number of pivots at some point, you've kind of done all the different variations and then there's nothing new under the sun. And that's when you get into the stage we're in right now. No more martial art actors. You teach Keanu Reeves how to do martial arts on film because with uh, filming angles, with editing, with stuntmen, with CGI, you can make anyone look like a martial artist, all right? So the idea that you have to go through years of training like Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, and Yun Biu going to the uh, Peking Opera and learning how to do tumbles and rolls and all this kind of stuff when you can just put Kanunu Reeves in front of a green screen and make him do a flip with a computer, all right? Then why do you need these guys who have been training their whole lives, all right? Uh, and when you have Bruce Lee who had that charisma and that magnetism when he moved, well, you can fake it with a really good actor and make it look like that punch had the same power of Bruce Lee. So that time is over, all right? Um, everyone who came after Bruce Lee immediately was imitating him and they got blown out of the water. No one wanted to see that. They had to pivot. What was the first pivot in Hong Kong cinema after Bruce Lee died? Traditional Kung Fu, because Bruce Lee did not do traditional Kung Fu. He did John Wayne Kung Fu, all right? Big old punches and kicks, right? So Shaw Brothers said, we need to go really technical, show all the shapes. That became Shaw Brothers thing. Jackie said, I need to do comedy because Bruce was too serious. Those were two pivots because no one could do what Bruce Lee did. So you had traditional Kung Fu on the Shaw Brothers side and then Jackie doing Kung Fu comedy, all right? And then in the States, what did you have? You didn't have great martial art movies in the States for a long, and it wasn't until The Matrix. Martial art films before The Matrix in the US were garbage, all right? I mean, yeah, you could say Enter the Dragon was an American movie, but it was a Bruce Lee. Mm, yeah, right? but like, I mean, canon films, like. Okay, but, I, but I'm gonna get to that in a moment, Yeah. all right? The one exception was canon, all right, <laughs> in the 80s. Yes. And they did ninja movies, a new category. All right? And then they wanted to go back to fist fighting movies and they found Van Damme. And this was another pivot. Good looking, bigger than Bruce Lee type guy with extravagant kicks. And Jean-Claude Van Damme was amazing, all right? Because he was not trying to be like Bruce Lee, but he had that wow effect by the way he looked and the way he moved and like cheese ball lines and the accent and everything like that, right? So he was able to do it, it's just that he had his personal demons and his career went the way it did, right? Seagal was a pivot, all right? No kicks, because that guy can't lift his leg to save his life, but he had the really cool Aikido throws and he made Aikido look brutal. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Hard to Kill, look at Above the Law. I Law mean, for what, death. Say what you want, all right? Say what you want about uh, Seagal now. Seagal has become a meme now, all right? I mean, even in my one encounter with Steven Seagal, I was on the toilet when he called me, which tells you everything you need to know about what Seagal is like right now, right? But you look at Seagal back then, that was another pivot. He couldn't do what Jean-Claude Van Damme did because he can't kick. He's not the dynamic Bruce Lee guy, but he could do this really brutal looking Aikido, and that was the thing. And I feel that when he went away from that is also when his career suffered, right? So you have the main one, and then after that, you have to have guys who pivot and do something else. But at some point, you have done all the pivots. 
and you've seen all the most intricate choreography from Hong Kong. And then everything else is just rehashing. Like the new Yip Man movies, they just even rehash choreography from previous Yip Man movies. It's like they've totally given up the ghost. And now Yip Man 5 comes out. The poster for Yip Man 5 is a wooden dummy with a bunch of people felled after. So now the wooden dummy is beating people up. All right? I mean, like, crazy, right? So, um, no, I think that time is over. Uh, Hong Kong films are done. Mainland China has killed the Hong Kong film industry. So they only make garbage for mainland China now. And uh, including the Yip Man the Yip Man, The reason why the Yip Man movies are more and more ridiculous is they're not made for you. They're made for mainland China. They're just little money-making machines. They're not made for, for people who actually give a shit about martial arts. It's just for China, all right? Yeah, sorry. And so, um, and so that's kind of where we're at right now. So I, I don't think... Um, I think it's over. I think... Kung Fu movie. That's why I watch old Kung Fu movies and I watch this. Uh, maybe movies, but you know um, there's a ton of Korean kind of like action dramas right now. That, You're um, into Korean soap operas? No, 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 they're, no, they're not, no, not K-dramas. Apparently like... K-pop? Oh yeah, I love K-pop. Who doesn't love BTS? You know what I'm saying? Spewgee yeah, Cell, by the way. All right, BTS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. unfortunately can't name any of them, but um, you know, I have an ex-girlfriend of mine who's really Wait, into Wait, isn't that BTS? Isn't that uh, Bind, Torture, Strangle? Oh, no, that's BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. That was that serial killer from back in the day. Oh, okay. I thought See, I that wouldn't was, be too into that. I thought that was a steakhouse. Oh, no, that's STK. <laughs> anyway. So, hey, guys, thank you so much for coming. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Cool to have those questions. And that's all I got to say about that. Okay, everyone. Well, that's everything for today's episode of The Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to The Kung Fu Genius, hit that bell for notifications, and if you have any questions for me to answer on a future episode, go ahead and write them in the comments below, and I'll see you guys next time. Word is I'm a Kung Fu genius. Technique speaks for me, not lineage. Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one. Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Seagung. And I produce masters. You surpassed us. Your Kung Fu stiffer than corpse and caskets. City Wing Chung is the house I built. Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt. Alex Richter, always the victor. What? Oh, the stand is showing up on my account. Hey, you want to even crop it out? It's work for you. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, wait a minute, I have to work? I have Fuck to work. shit it's is like, that? Like, wait, you guys are, no, 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 you're gonna crop that out. Gonna get, gonna get. Even I could do that on Premiere if I tried, so I know you can. Yo, yeah, well, you raise you. your hand, that's why. Yeah. All right. Come on, By sketchy. the way, any of this dead air, you gotta cut out. No, right? okay. we, we, we won't make it dead air. Sketchy Jose needs to ask a question. Are you gonna have to add... Yeah.